You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Thank you, both Joy and Marion, for being here. The Joy Smith Foundation works to ensure that every Canadian man, woman, and child is safe from manipulation, force, or abuse of power designed to lure and exploit them into the sex trade or forced labor. This is achieved through educating the public and providing funds and support in frontline organizations that rescue and rehabilitate victims. And uh, we want to just uh, put that on so that the people on, online can hear that. Uh, we are grateful, Joy, for what you do, and thank you for coming and just de- demonstrating what a life surrendered to Christ has led to and what God has brought about. She's mentioned the uh, Canadian... Uh, Museum of Human Rights that is just uh, this past Friday. Some of you are watching the opening ceremony. Pat and I were last night down at the Forks with a, with a concert. And, and of course, this is a, an incredible place uh, that, uh, in a sense, we can partner with to, to try and work with, uh, with things that are going wrong. And uh, today, as we look into the Word of God, we're going to see what partnership entails. And we're going to look at the fact that... Uh, there is a certain kind of partnership that God calls us to very distinctly. And then there's other broader partnerships that we can agree on, even with non-Christians, that are, that are common ground that we take a stand against. And this morning, we're going to distinguish between those a little bit. And uh, I was very intrigued, Joy, when I saw your webpage, the quote from William Wilberforce that said, You may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. And that grabbed me. I I read a a biography this past year, summer, of uh, William Wilberforce, politician in the 18th century England. And um, as I read and and discovered more about him, not only about 18th century England, but also about his life work and and, uh, ministry. But there was a a key time in his life that came about in 1785. And uh, forever after that, until he dies in 1833, he calls it the Great Change. And, uh, and he talks about the great change that happened in his life many times. And, of course, what he's referring to is his conversion to Jesus Christ, his, his coming to faith in Jesus. And uh, we're talking about a, a time when, in the words of the biographer, the Christian faith that had been once robust and strong and, and leading society into good things was now defanged and declawed. And if you, if you look at some kind of British uh, stuff, like uh, Doughton Abbey's a little later than that, but if you look at some of the, you, you kind of get this romanticized idea of England at that time. But friends, it was anything but that. Society in England in the 18th century was, was debauched. There was, there was so much going on. Slavery was one of the evils, but there was alcoholism, child prostitution and labor, public executions for petty crimes, public dissections and burning of criminals, and unspeakable cruelty to animals was regular occurrence. And uh, once there had been this incredible institution of, of things that were called almshouses in England, and uh, for centuries, and in the 18th century, hardly even existed, as well as other social nets that the church was raising up over the decades, over the centuries, but now had hardly become. And, and the divide between the rich and the poor at that time as well was so diverse, but the, the, the poor and the rich had both their vanities and their vulgarities. And they cared little about 
the others that were suffering in society. This was the world that William Wilberforce was born into. This is the world that he became a politician in. And in 18, or 1787, just a year and a half after this man come to Christ and knew the Lord, this is what he writes in his journal or his diary. He says, God Almighty has set before me two great objects. One, the suppression of the slave trade, and two, the reformation of manners. Now, the reformation of manners was some bills that he would in his lifetime pass that was dealing simply with the civility of British society that had become so terrible. But the thing that would take his almost 50-year political career to achieve was the abolition of the slave trade, where ships would go to Africa, West African places, and would, would just herd men like cattle and women into ships, and they would go to the West Indies and other colonies that were British colonies at the time and force them into slave slavery in the plantations. Uh, slavery in the plantations. And um, it was this that, that God set his heart on. He knew that was why God put his hand on his life. You know, in Luke chapter 4, we read a passage of scripture. Jesus has just been in the wilderness fasting. He is just getting ready to start his public ministry. And he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And he walks into the synagogue and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. And he opens up the prophet Isaiah and it, it comes to chapter 61. And he begins to read and he says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He closes the book and he sits down. And he begins his ministry. His public ministry. Do you know within the words that, that Luke 4 quotes from Isaiah 61 is found every one of us. Our mission statement for life. Every follower of Christ can find in the words of Jesus, quoting Isaiah 61, the reason why God has us here. You see, every one of us as followers of Christ, as Joy has alluded to this morning, has to figure out, why is the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord on me? What has God anointed me to do? It's a very personal question. And you go to God with that question. You say, why, God, did you set me apart? What is your purpose for my life? William Wilberforce, at the age of 28, knew why the spirit of the sovereign Lord was upon him and what he had been anointed to do. And just as he dies, the bill is passed to abolish slavery in England and all of its colonies. Joy Smith seems to know why the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon her, what God has anointed her to do. The Apostle Paul knew why the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord was upon him and what God had anointed him to do. He says in Romans, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He says in Corinthians, sorry. In Romans, he says, It has been my life's passion to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. That's where he's called. Every one of us has to figure that out. And so in Paul's figuring it out, he has taken on these missionary journeys. And we talked last week in Acts chapter 16 about the missionary journey that, 
the second one that Paul has taken on, takes him from Asia where all the churches had been planted so far into the very first church planted in Europe in a Roman colony called Philippi, what is present-day Greece. And God closes doors and opens doors and they find themselves there. And as their practice was, they, the very first Sabbath morning, Paul and Silas and Timothy and his companions, they get up and they go down to the synagogue. And they figure they're going to talk to some Jewish people there, some God-fearing people. But there's no, there's no synagogue in Philippi. You see, you need 10 Jewish men in a Roman colony in order to start a synagogue. That was the quorum. That was the needed number. And there were no 10 Jewish men, apparently, in Philippi. It was a Gentile city. And so they go outside of the city gate. They go down toward the river where they're going to look for a place to pray. And they find a group of women there. And as they begin to share and talk about Jesus Christ, God opens the heart of a woman named Lydia who becomes the very first convert of the church at Philippi. And then Paul's ministry continues in weeks and months to come. He, he, is, he is incredibly blessed by God and people are turning to Jesus, but along with it is coming imprisonment even, opposition. And yet God keeps growing the church. By the time Paul leaves Philippi on that second missionary journey, not only is a church formed in that town, in that city, But that church is supporting Paul financially on his journeys. And he has incredible friendships there that are enduring. So that then when we open up our Bibles to the book of Philippians, which is written 10 years after that first visit to Philippi, we can read in the language that Philippians has this affection, this this deep friendship. And in the 10 years that he had been... Since he'd first visited Philippi, we only know of one visit in Acts chapter 20 and his third missionary journey. Would you turn to Philippians chapter 1 and let's take a look at it together. Philippians chapter 1. And um, we're going to read the beginning of this letter today and as we introduce it, talk about the big themes, two big ideas that Paul introduces as he introduces this letter. Would you stand with me? And let me read this portion to us together. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May, bless, may God bless his word. You may be seated. As your Bibles are open, take a look at the first words. Interesting that uh, Paul begins and Timothy by saying that they're the servants of Christ Jesus and the church are the saints. And you would think that it might be turned around, that, you know, it's St. Paul and St. Timothy are writing to the servants. But that's not the way 
Paul saw leadership. Paul saw leadership spiritually, first of all, as servanthood. And uh, then he goes on and he doesn't say that the church is under the pastors and deacons, the overseers and deacons. He says along with them, which is another attitudinal indication that Paul saw leadership in the, in the local church as this incredible coming alongside of and walking with and shepherding together among the flock and not this kind of a authoritarian attitude. And so Paul begins the tenor of this letter with a very fellowship-oriented kind of, of approach. And then he gets into his accustomed uh, grace and peace. Every one of his letters has that. And then he goes into talking about how he prays for them again. Very common. And he uses all the hyperboles. I always pray for all of you. And, and it just the all stuff is going on in verses 3 and 4. But he says, I always pray with joy. And guess what the main word in Philippians is? Joy. Between joy and rejoice and its derivatives, there's 14 times that that Paul is referring to joy in this little epistle. That's why we got Joy Smith here today. We thought we'd just kick it off with a a little joy. A lot of joy. It was great to have her here. And so today as we look at this, there's two big ideas that you'll see in this little pink piece of paper in your bulletin and And the first one arises out of verse 6. There are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And so let's take a look at it together. First of all, Paul says in verse 6 that he always prays with joy because of their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There's the first truth. Paul is saying that, that from the very first day, literally 10 years ago, he's thinking, when Lydia came to Christ until now, he's confident that God is going to finish until the day of Christ Jesus, the good work that God began. You know, it's interesting because Lydia's response to the, 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 the message of the gospel was, was probably similar to what we see in, later in Acts chapter 16, the, the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So she, there was a confession of her sin. There was an acknowledgement of her need. There was an acknowledgement of God's provision for our need as sinners through Jesus, his son, and she came to faith. But you know what? The way the Acts 16 Luke account gives us is all it says is God opened her heart. You see, all, all that Luke says in Acts 16 is God opened her heart. Because you see, what God begins, God finishes. And it's God who's the one that must begin it. And so we see in this passage of Scripture that there's this incredible God moment that happens in Lydia's life. It was God that orchestrated that. God had closed all these doors that Paul wanted to go to in Asia Minor, and he opened the door to Europe. God had closed, there was no synagogue there, but he opened a way down to the river. God had brought Lydia and these women there to that river. The church back at Antioch that sent Paul and Silas out were praying on their knees. God opened the doors and opened the hearts. Paul and his friends were preaching, but God was the one that was opening the hearts, you see. If you're sitting here this morning and you know that you have assurance that you belong to Jesus Christ, that if you were to die when you walk out of this building, you are going to be directly in the arms of Christ for eternity. If you know that, you have only God to thank by His grace because He opened your heart. 
He, he set up all the circumstances that made you come to understand your need of him and then you turn to him. God is the one that begins the work in our hearts and God is the one that is going to bring it to fruition and, and completeness. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his testimony book called Surprised by Joy. He talks about how he was one of the most dejected and reluctant converts in all of England when he gave his life to Jesus. He says, The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? You see, God had put it on C.S. Lewis's heart to come to God, even though all kinds of fleshly things were saying, I don't want to come to you. Because you see, God knew why the spirit of the sovereign Lord was set on C.S. Lewis, and pretty soon he knew why he was anointed. And we have a bulk of incredible literature from the 20th century that is feeding the church yet. Do you, know, understand, do you understand the words of the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it? Prone to leave the God I love? Do you have that duplicity in your heart sometime? Do you have the war going on where you know the right thing to do, but you're drawn away from it? You see, it's God who began the work, and you can trust God. He will finish the work. He will finish the work that he began. The first big idea, the first fundamental truth that Paul wants to lay down at the Philippians as he writes them, and he says, God is the one that's doing it. Trust him. You're not going to look upon your life and see all the time that the work is carrying on. You might be frustrated this morning. You might look at your life and say, I'm still struggling with the sins that I struggled with years ago. You might be growing thin in your patience on this whole process called sanctification, being made holy and like his son Jesus. It could be that you've forgotten one of three very important principles. And the first is that you're not as patient as God is in the whole process of making you like his son. Do you realize how far you were from his son image when he first got a hold of you. It's a long way to go. And so you, you maybe have forgotten that you need to be patient with the process. Secondly, you might be prone to not recognize that it's in your very failures along the journey that's the most important lessons God has to teach you. You might have forgotten that, that it's in your very failures along the way that God has some very key lessons for you if you're going to get them. And then thirdly, you might also have gotten your eyes off of Christ. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the finisher, the author and the finisher of your faith. And if you get your eyes on yourself in trying to become more like him, you're never going to make it. You're going to be wandering. And so the first very important big idea is that Paul is confident that That he who began the good work in you is going to bring it to completion. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is equally important. And that is that Paul was as confident that just as confident as he was that what God began, God will finish. He was confident that from the first day, verse 5, until now, 10 years later, he was confident because he saw them in their partnership in the gospel. Now, what does that mean? The word for partnership here is the word fellowship, koinonia. And the word koinonia is an incredibly deep word. It means that you and I, if we're going to have fellowship, we have to participate in something together. 
You cannot have koinonia all by yourself. If you and I are going to have koinonia, we're going to have to participate together in something. Paul is saying that the fellowship that he's had with them, these Philippian believers, for 10 years now, has been a fellowship in the gospel. We've got fellowships, we've got partnerships, as the NIV describes it, with Far Corners Ministry, Pathway Camp Ministries, Canadian Baptist Ministries. We go to Bolivia or India or northern Manitoba or downtown Winnipeg. Good partnerships. We agree on something we're going to do together. Paul is saying our partnership here is in the gospel. Some people say, well, that's because they supported Paul in his missionary endeavors. Well, that's only part of it. Paul's saying that their fellowship is in the gospel because they believed the gospel. They gave their hearts over to Christ. When in that first day that he's talking about, there was genuine spiritual transformation that occurred in Lydia's heart and all those people that became the church. And he's saying because of that, and he saw the fruit of it all those 10 years, because of it, he says, I I have confidence to say that what God began, God's going to finish. And so... The evangel, the the gospel that humbles all of us, humbles all of us, causes us to see the ugliness of our sin. And then in the same instance, takes our eyes and lifts it to God and says, wow, only God can provide what I as a sinner need. And absolutely by grace makes us partakers, participants in the divine nature And gives us a brand new heart. And the Spirit of God begins to clean house in our being. You know, the word in verse 6 where it talks about completion. It has the idea of... It has the idea of completing in the kind of sense that that God is is never going to go back on it. It's taking care of the finishing touches. Forever dealing with the finishing touches of your life. That's what God's committed to. You know, I love home renovations. And uh, over the years, we've had various homes in uh, Eagle River, in Thunder Bay, in Winnipeg. We didn't own anything in Bolivia. And I love home renovations. I love take out that wall. Bust that down. In with the, out with the old, in with the... I just love doing that. The thing that I'm not so good about are the finishing touches. I mean, I, I can, I think that by the time we get to sell every house we've ever owned and sold, we probably could get $10,000 more if I could just learn how to mud and drywall and sand and paint. But God's not like that. God is forever putting the finishing touches on you and I until the day we die. He's doing that. But you see, if you're really, genuinely a follower of Christ, you're participating in that. You're you're agreeing with the finishing touches. You're saying, yes, Lord, I know that you got to sand down that hard-hearted wall of mine in my life. I know you got to deal with that relationship. He's forever doing that. That's what it is. He's going to bring it to completion. You can run, but you cannot hide. And so the point is that the second big idea is that Paul is confident 
Because from the first day until now, 10 years later, he sees that they've been cooperating with God. Their fellowship is in the gospel. Later on in verse 7, he says, even in defending and confirming the gospel, you're sharing, similar word to fellowship, you're partakers in the grace of God. You see, the point is, is that we authenticate, we authenticate our faith and we authenticate the gospel by how we live out our Christian life. I was talking with Steve this past week Works for UPS. Yay, UPS. And um, we were talking about this concept. And you know that online now, you can, you, you can do so much online. You can shop, you can pay bills, you can got accounts. But most groups like UPS and Amazon and Canada Post and so on, they're going to want you to authenticate before they're going to let you access to that account. You've got to give identification or passwords or whatever. And that's what, that's what Paul is teaching here. Paul is saying that if indeed God began the work in that first day and is still continuing it until now and will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus, if that's true, then you better authenticate. You've got to prove that you have an account in heaven and you prove it by the life you live. Don't come to me or anybody else saying, well, I have assurance of my home in heaven and my account with the grace of God in heaven and my forgiveness of sin because back on that first day, I remember that I I prayed the prayer. I grew up in the Christian home. I went to a Christian school. You see, Paul does not say from the first day, period. He says from the first day until now, until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's why when the the Apostle John is is writing to the churches in Revelation, he says, those who persevere until the end will be saved. You see, friends, how can I have assurance for your salvation? That's what Paul's doing. Paul has assurance for the salvation of the Philippians. How is that possible? The only way I will have assurance about your salvation is by the life you live. An apple tree bears apples. Now, we can have a lot easier time with our own assurance because we have an intimacy with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit living in us, but it's hard to have an assurance about somebody else. And Paul says, you authenticate the gospel in your relationships. Are you living like the gospel teaches you to live? So that's the kind of discipleship that Paul is taking a journey on in this book of Philippians. That's what we're going to be studying in the, in the weeks to come. In verses 9 to 11, Paul concludes by saying, I want to pray for you, Philippians. Well, why pray for them if, if he's confident that he who began the good work is going to finish it? Well, again, it's because you're authenticating. Paul's saying, God, I want you to authenticate the gospel, validate it, confirm it, show it, prove it in these people more and more and more and more and more in abounding in love and in a sincerity of faith, in a knowledge and in a discernment. And then he he concludes by saying, and in purity and blamelessness. And the word for purity is the idea of sincerity. It means tested by the sun. And it came out of the the ancient Greek practice of potters and, and sculptors that would take stones and marble and, and they would make things out of, 
out of these, these blocks of stone. And then if, the, if the, there was a defect in the block of stone, they would fill it with wax. But if you put it out in the sun, the, the sun would melt the wax and it was no longer seen as sincere without wax. It was faulty. Paul's saying, you're going you're gonna to be one day the real deal. You're going to show that you're the real deal. You're going to authenticate your real relationship with Christ. And I'm confident that God's going to do it in you. But your life has to authenticate if it's truly that you have an account of heaven in the grace of God. Thank you for your patience this morning. Would you stand with me as I pray for us? And um, would you let me pray that God might help us individually to understand why the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon us and what he has anointed us to do. Let's pray. Father, now as we enjoy a a meal together downstairs, we look forward to further fellowship, talking with each other. We pray that you'd help many to be able to stay. Father, we also ask your blessing on the food as we get ready to receive it. But God, we're praying now as we, we conclude the service, we're asking that you might show us, oh God, why it is that you put your spirit upon us and what it is that you've anointed us to do. Lord, let, let every heart here understand that. And to Father, we, we pray that you'd give us patience to see how it is that you're working out your grace in our lives. And so thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you so much for Joy Smith and her foundation. We ask you, Lord, pour out abundance of support and care and love and a conscience, Lord, that would lead more workers and more support to this kind of endeavor. Oh, God, in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Go in peace. God bless you.